I mean, when you hear these guys talking about these advanced real estate strategies, they're so seasoned. They're not going to buy these single hits. Like they're only going to get home runs because they have so much activity and things going on. It's not worth their time. You as a, a newer investor or house hacker, you got to put in reps and grind it out and get those first couple going. You probably don't know what you're doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but house hacking is one of those things where it's a pretty safe bet. You're probably going to stumble into a pretty good situation. Welcome to the House Hacking Success Podcast, where you'll learn the path to free rent and financial freedom through real estate. Featuring your hosts, Brad Labrie and Drew Klingler. Welcome to House Hacking Success. Today, we have an amazing guest. It happens to be my CPA, Cody. Cody, we appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Good to be here. It's been a long time coming. Drew, great seeing you again. Before we get into the show, Drew, update us a little bit. You just purchased a new house. Let us know how that transition's going. Yeah, sure. Switched over to a single family, not house hacking. It's been a good transition. Got a baby on the way, so we decided we needed some more space for a family of four. So in that first house hack, things are going well, getting some tenants in there. And my intentions with that are to use some of the equity I have in that property by the next rental property. You guys are doing a great job. It's been a long time coming trying to get Cody on the show. Just a really brilliant individual. He house hacks as well in Metro Detroit. And we're going to go through kind of what that looks like, some of the numbers. We're going to talk through taxes. But full disclosure, Cody's my CPA. So Cody handles the entirety of what we do, our holdings as far as buy and hold, our flips, my real estate brokerage, the land holdings we have, just kind of everything that I do within real estate, construction company, things like that. So Cody's well versed in the realm of real estate. He has clients in 20 different states. He's licensed throughout the country. So if anyone has questions or wants to talk to Cody, we'll certainly give his credentials and contact information at the end. But Cody, again, appreciate you coming on. Talk to us a little bit about the early stages and how you got into real estate. I was going to college and I needed a summer job and I lift heavy things. So I went and did a labor job working for a local real estate investor in my college. I think he had about 30 student rentals and a hotel. I just kind of picked up on the game he was playing as far as building equity in some of these properties and supplementing his income through rent. And I got interested. I think I was painting his hotel and I was listening to uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that literally just kind of changed everything for me. I spent two years in college going for pre-med and I've always been an entrepreneur since I was little. And once I listened to that book, it just kind of changed my whole perspective. So that fall, going back to school, I changed my degree to finance. So I got my undergraduate degree in finance. I liked accounting. So I sticked around, got my master's in accounting and then got my CPA out of college. So yeah, that's kind of, I guess, how I got started, like being interested in real estate, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do in real estate. I started working with you, Brad. I realized that the most logical first step was to do a house hack. I could save up some money for my W-2 job, get into a house, save on rent, build some equity, and just kind of start my investing career. That's when I touched base with you. Luckily, we were in the same market, generally the same market. You were willing to travel a little bit for me. So I appreciate that. That's kind of how we got started. Let's walk through kind of that initial house hack before we get into a lot of the accounting stuff, CPA work you do, you originally reached out to me and we just kind of walked through what that might look like. At first, we're very ambitious. We're looking at some big, big projects and doing some big 203k stuff. But ultimately, we settled on a single family house where you could still add some value. So let's walk through from your point of view, what that looked like going at first into some big ambitious stuff and then kind of reeling it back in and going with something that obviously has worked out really well for you. My risk tolerance is pretty high. So as soon as I realized you knew what you were doing, I figured I'd 
uh, test your threshold. And I'm willing to take some risks. So I took some big swings there early on, probably realized I didn't know what I was doing and wasted some money on inspections and such, but that's all right. I learned a lot there. I really didn't know what I wanted to get into at first. I knew a couple of things. I had two roommates that I was living with in Metro Detroit that I played football with in college. I actually lived with one of them in college. So I was like, all right, I got two guys that are willing to live with me. We're renting right now. I just need to get into something. These guys will pay me market rent. I know that they're good dudes. At first, I was looking at some multifamily. Didn't know if I had the funds to really swing a multifamily. I was looking at some single family stuff. So I know I was sending you the gamut of things. I'm also just obviously a very analytical person being a CPA and in finance. I was running the numbers on everything on the MLS, trying to figure out anything that made sense. And then if it made sense, I was giving you a call and we were going to look at it and then put an offer. And I know we looked at quite a few places. Like you said, we were looking at some possible 203K stuff, a couple of multi-units, a couple of single family. And then this house I'm in right now, thankfully stumbled upon this one because obviously early on, you don't have a set in stone path of what you're looking for. So this one just gave me a lot of security. It was in a great area, less than a mile of where I was already living. It's within a mile of Royal Oak, which is one of the more happening areas in Michigan. So I just knew that, okay, if I get this place, it's going to appreciate. It's going to always have strong renters available. And if I end up wanting to Airbnb, that would be a very viable option. Also, there's about 400 square feet of additional living space upstairs in an unfinished attic. So I was willing to get my hands dirty again and build some sweat equity. So I converted the room I'm in now. It's 400 square feet and I added a master suite. So it's a bedroom with a full bath. So that's what I ended up doing. But yeah, I mean, we'll get into the numbers here shortly, but it seemed kind of like a base hit deal to me. I was a little hesitant, a little scared, a little worried, but I figured base hit's good enough for me. Let's just get started and get going on this thing. One thing that we did, I just want to point out, especially with the 203K, and I know the the two times that we kind of tried to do it with you, one was before you bought this house and the other one was after. But one of the shortcuts that I think really worked out well for you, even though it didn't ultimately go through, was we went direct to contractors for bids to do your inspections. Something that I think a lot of people don't really consider when they're doing that is there's always that worry of what's it going to cost. So what I advise you to do was hire contractors that I knew personally that were good in their fields. And we had them come out and they did a general inspection like an inspector would while giving you a detailed report. And that way you knew up front, right on day five into the contract, almost down to a T on what's it going to cost you. And then you could kind of go backwards and say, all right, so what should we do? Where do we have to be? Where do I have to be? One of the quotes, you kind of took out some things because you're like, well, maybe if we just do these things, at least it'll get me into it and make the numbers work. That's something I always like to talk about because if you do it the other way, you can get yourself in a little bit of trouble and it takes forever. Very few contractors are just going to come out and give a quote for free. And so what you did was you just paid them directly to do your inspection. Obviously, they're the ones in the field so they can identify things at a high level as well, but also give you a written report. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Kudos to you for recommending that because I did get a general home inspection on the house I'm living in now. And a guy comes in with a little beeper, plugs it into some walls, touches a probe to some wood to make sure it's not wet and then charges $300. Whereas I can have a a general contractor, like you said, knows what they're doing, knows what needs to be replaced, things that are in code. And uh, yeah, they can lay out a detailed report of how much everything will cost, still paying them the three to $500. And like you said, it gives me more reasonable expectation of what my numbers will look like for the renovations. And that's always where the holdup is. If somebody out there is considering a 203K, which obviously it's become a little bit more popular than it was when I first kind of did it and when Cody was going through it. But that's always where the hiccup comes in. You'll maybe do your inspections, but then there's like two to three weeks where people are trying to get contractors out there. Contractors are busy. They don't want to come out and give a free quote on something that's not closed. All this waiting time and maybe they come out and it takes them another week or two to get you the report. All of a sudden, a month goes by and you still don't really have the report and you can't order that appraisal without submitting an initial contract. I kind of advise 
you there too, was you don't necessarily have to go with that contractor, but you can submit a report so that if you move forward, they're going to use that as a baseline order the appraisal. And then you can go potentially interview other contractors in the meantime to get a different quote and go with a different company, try to get a better price if that's what you're aiming for. But it really helps you speed line that process. I just wanted to highlight that before we get into the numbers here. Let's go through the, the numbers here on that house hack. What does that look like? I went through a fun little process of going back, looking at all my old spreadsheets and valuations on this property before I actually purchased it. I did two different timelines, basically. I ran the numbers for up to when I was going to move out in 2022, which we're here and I'm getting ready to move out. I also did a valuation for 10 years if I were to sell. The way my valuation looked at first was basically, I'm going to cut my rent in half. My monthly payment's going to be $300 after my mortgage, my insurance, and my property taxes. I'll be paying $300 a month and I was paying $600. So I was like, okay, cool. And I actually looked at amortization calculator when I was doing my valuation. $300 is going to principal. So I'm really not even paying anything. I'm just directly paying down my debts. And then I figured I'd spend about $4,000 in renovations, which was way off. By the time I moved out, I figured I'd have about $40,000 in equity and $160 in cash flow. It's a good equity build, but I knew it was going to take a lot of work on my end. So I was hoping to get some good equity. But $160 in cash flow, I was kind of hoping for a little bit more than that. That's what I projected back in 2022 when I did this for the first time. Now that we're in 2022, I looked at what the actuals are. So my upstairs renovation, I expected it to be four grand and it was actually 13 grand. Not a general contractor. I do not know how much things cost, even if I'm doing it myself. So it was about three times higher, but still, even with that larger initial capital outlay, it's still a way better investment than what I expected it to be. I thought that in 2022, the house would be worth 213. It's actually worth 270. So it's about $57,000 higher in value than I thought it was going to be because of the huge market run we've had. Adding the extra bedroom and bath in this area, I didn't realize how much that was going to improve the home's price. I figured I'd have about 40,000 in equity, which is actually at 105,000. So about 64,000 more in equity. My rent, I thought it was going to be 1850 based on the growth rate I gave it. And it's actually can rent out for about 2300. So about $450 more per month in rent. So looking at cash flow, I was thinking 160 and I'm actually at 585. So I'm getting almost $600 a month in cash flow and I have all this equity, which I've already taken a home equity line of credit out on as I go to look for my next place. Very happy with how things ended up turning out just two years later. Backing up to like what you said about you're paying $300 to live there, but that's actually going to your principal pay down. It's a pretty cool perspective because you do get to draw that money back. If you're just paying down the debt, eventually that's going to be equity that you can pull out. And that's a cool perspective. Like house hack doesn't have to be a cash flow deal or $0 right at the bottom line living for free. $300 cutting your rent in half is still a really good deal. And look what it turns into. It's going to turn into $600 of cash flow. So that's huge. Yeah, for sure. You're pulling it right back out. I paid down that debt for the two years. I mean, whatever. It's not that much of an amount, but I paid down that debt and now I'm just pulling it back out in a HELOC that I can use to do different stuff in my business and then also within real estate. So, And then I guess lastly here for the nerds out there. So for my 10-year forecast, I projected selling it after year 10. So I took my initial capital outlay, all the renovations, closing costs, projected it to year 10 and what my house would be worth, and then got my cash on cash return and the net present values. My average cash on cash return, I projected to be about 13%. And it's actually at 33. And then the net present value is actually doubled. It was at 34,000. Now it's at 70. So great investment. Happy I did it. <laughs> That's awesome. Were you conservative on your evaluation before or did things just blow up that much? I was conservative on my valuation. I remember when I was looking to buy a house, oh, everything is so expensive. Things are way overpriced. I had so many friends telling me how dumb I am to buy real estate. And it's like, whatever, dude, I'm putting 3% down and I'm eliminating my rent expense. This really isn't that big of a swing. If I don't like it in two years, I can just sell it. It's not that big of a step to take. It's just a little beginner house after college. It's not a big deal. But then just two years later, seeing how 
much more things have blown up. I'm in an A-class neighborhood, very affluent area. Prices around here just went crazy. I have some friends that just moved in down the street and that's what they're paying is 2400 a month and mine's as comparable to that one. You never know what's going to happen in the market. I ran my numbers conservatively because I didn't want to buy a headache. That's kind of just what made me feel comfortable, I guess, with actually making the investment, knowing that I only had upside. Let's go and do kind of some of the nerdy stuff now, like with that perspective of, is it too expensive to buy? As you both know, one of my expertise over the last couple of years is new construction. And so I spent a lot of time with people like yourself and in, in insurance and brokers and things of that nature of cost to rebuild homes. You can't build that replacement cost for a lot of these homes. Taking that perspective, we have higher interest rates, home values are still high. But let's look at the tax implications of buying real estate and holding it long-term and then kind of how house hackers can tap into that and look at it from a perspective of not only on my buying real estate, we get the value of cash flow and things like that, but long-term, how great is real estate as a holding and a way to depreciate against your income? I'll start first with, I guess, kind of the end of your question there on how great it is, especially for your audience, usually kids straight out of college. They're not that developed in their careers yet. So a lot of people are going to be able to qualify for what's called passive loss allowance. Generally, if you have real estate losses, which most people do because of depreciation and other uh, paper expenses, you're going to have a loss. So generally, people can't even tap into those losses. They have to just keep postponing those into the future to where they have passive income from a business they don't participate in or maybe other rental income, whatever it is. When a lot of people think about a loss in real estate, you're not offsetting your W-2 or your business income. No active incomes being decreased here. No active incomes can be decreased because it's a passive loss. But if you're under a $100,000 threshold for your modified adjusted gross income, which a lot of your listeners are going to because they're house hackers, they're early on in their career, a lot of those people are going to make less than six figures. They qualify for this passive loss allowance. And what this says is that you can actually offset your W-2 or your active business income up to $25,000. So this is extremely powerful, especially early on in your investing career, because if you buy a house and you take a $25,000 loss, you can get up to a $7,000 refund from the IRS in that first year, your first tax year of owning this real estate. So you can take these losses, reduce your W-2 income, get a bunch of that money back that you put into a down payment renovation cost. You can take that back, putting it into other real estate or any other things that uh, you're interested in getting into. So passive loss allowance is extremely powerful, especially early on when you qualify for it. Like I said, you have to be under 100,000. So from 100 to 150, it's going to start decreasing how much you can of a loss you can actually take against your active income. Once your modified adjusted gross income is over 150K, you no longer qualify for this. It's extremely important early on when you can qualify for this to take advantage of it. And then once you're over the 150, you need to qualify as a real estate professional or you need to use some very advanced tax strategies like a, a short-term rental loophole, which I'm looking to do this year. But these things are much harder to qualify for. A lot of people, it's not even applicable to them and won't want to do it. So it's really important to, to take these active losses while you can. So for the house hackers, let's go into maybe some of the other things that uh, they should be looking into or consulting with someone like yourself about as they enter potentially house hacking, or maybe they already are. Yeah, sure. So I guess sticking on the, the passive losses, in order to supercharge these passive losses, I mean, a lot of times when you're buying real estate for the first time, you're going to be making repairs, replacing appliances, whatever it is. Those bigger expensed items, those need to be capitalized. You can't just expense those high priced items in the first year of buying it. But a little trick, I mean, there is bonus depreciation now, which is being phased out. So I'm not going to get into that. But thing that I advise a lot of my clients on, especially like the earlier on real estate investors is there's what's called de minimis safe harbor election. And so what this is, is basically if you get an invoice for $2,500, it doesn't matter what it's for, you can write it off. So it's just a safe harbor election that you have to elect on your tax return. And you can write these things off. They really won't be scrutinized too much by 
the IRS. So for example, I replaced the flooring in my house. It was 2300 for the labor and then uh, 2200 for the materials. It was pretty close to the $4,500 mark. So I got that invoice and I was like, hey, can I split this up? Can I pay maybe for the materials up front and then I'll pay the labor once you guys are done with it? And they were fine with it. So what this is allowing me to do is I'm taking a $4,500 loss this year on this flooring. Whereas any other time, like if it didn't apply because it was over that $4,500 check mark, I would only be taking a $900 loss or expense deduction on my taxes. So what that ends up looking like is $1,200 back in a refund instead of $250 back in a refund. So I, this is something bonus appreciation, these safe harbor elections, just a little bit of planning, a little critiquing, um, just playing it smart. You can really start to supercharge these losses when you can actually take them to offset your active income. Just different advisory stuff like that. CPA can kind of help you out with just different things to plan for. I guess there is some intricacies with house hacking that can get pretty confusing when it comes to taking deductions. If it's in a unit you don't live in, 100% deductible. If it's in your unit, you can't deduct it. If it's the roof, you have to apply a percentage to it. But then you can take that percentage. You could take those expenses in your unit that you couldn't deduct this year. And then when you actually place it in service, start to reap those benefits. A lot of that stuff just needs to be planned out to make sure you're not just suspending these losses or these deductions because they're extremely powerful. So if you're diligent, you have an advisor that can kind of help you set up and plan for this stuff. You'll save a lot in taxes and keep you compliant. House hacks, you know, whether it's multifamily, single family, there's personal use limitations, there's mixed use properties, it gets kind of confusing. So to be a beginner in DIY, that is probably a pretty heavy lift. So I know I just keep rambling on. <laughs> I love it. So what you said about the percentages, like if I live in a four unit and I fix the roof, basically you can deduct 75% of that because I'm living in one of the four units or is that going to be based off square footage? Correct. So you'll probably, I mean, unless you're using some of these safe harbors, you'll have to capitalize it. And then, yeah. So the first year you can take that 75% of that deduction, but then you can ramp up the deduction later on because you want to accurately deduct different pieces of property. So once you move out, then you can speed up those deductions. If you buy a house and you start depreciating it incorrectly, and then five years down the line, you hire a CPA, they're going to have to retroactively go back, correct those mistakes, look at your roof, see that it's all out of whack, correct those mistakes. Like it can just end up costing you more money in the long run if you screw some of these things up and have someone go back and retroactively correct. Absolutely. Yeah, I tried to do TurboTax my first year of house hacking and I was just like, I'm calling somebody right now. I had to go find someone because I just didn't want to deal with figuring out how I'm going to put everything into there. And I don't even think like TurboTax supported a primary residence that you're renting out. And it was just really confusing for me. And it's just the nature of the type of people we are and the type of people that listen to this podcast. I mean, we're DIYers. We're trying to make money. I mean, I'm not a general contractor. I mean, I figured out plumbing, electric. <laughs> I mean, we always want to do it ourselves, but I don't know, getting into fits with the IRS and not only that, but you just miss out on so many tax saving things early on to that you can take advantage. I think once you get your first rental, if it's a primary residence, don't worry about it if you're not renting it out. But the people we're talking to who are going to be investing in real estate mm -hmm. and house hacking, I think once you get your first property, it's about time to call a CPA. Yeah. And you can talk about future strategies with that CPA yep. too. So you're not just guessing on the properties that you own, but you can strategize for the future and let them know what your plans are. I guess one thing I'll say on that too, make sure that you are working with an advisor that's doing your tax planning. There's a lot of people that sell one-off tax plans. Things change in your life. Your tax plan may not be applicable three months down the line, or the CPA you're working with might not even understand the strategy you're trying to execute or feel comfortable preparing and filing it. I would say that's another big tip for your audience too, is make sure you're kind of going to like a one-stop shop that's actually going to execute on the strategy, not like an Instagram influencer who's going to sell you a run-of-the-mill plan for real estate investors. There's a lot of intricacies and things change in your life. Do you have any recommendations for what our listeners should 
should ask people just to verify that they're actually legit, that they have the experience they're claiming to have? As far as direct question, I never had the opportunity to go look for a CPA, but just make sure that they work with real estate investors. CPAs are extremely niche, just like a lawyer. You're going to have one specific area that you work in, and that's the person you want to hire that's in that specific area. There's a lot that changes. The internal revenue code changes. There's different court tax laws that'll come out and change. And if you're not with a CPA that's in that niche, they're not going to be privy to those changes. It's not going to be hard to find someone that specializes in whatever industry you're in. And if it's real estate, they're probably going to have it all over their website. They're probably going to be talking about it all the time because that's their niche and that's what they know about. That's what they're passionate about. But beyond that, I would say try to find a CPA that also invests in real estate. And I mean, there's a lot of them. So they just can speak your language a bit more and they know what you're trying to accomplish. A really simple example is when I have a client come to me and they're laying out their expenses for a renovation or just ongoing expenses for upkeep, I kind of know the different expenses that are going to go on with investing in real estate just because I'm doing it myself. So I can call out things that are going to be missing. If one category of your expenses looks way out of whack because you miscategorized it, well, that's going to be an IRS red flag. So let's dig into that. Let's figure out where we need to actually correctly categorize these expenses. So I'm mitigating your risk for an audit. And then I'm also helping capture a lot of those deductions that a lot of people just, I mean, you're in, we're all busy, so you're going to be missing things. So if you have someone that actually invests in real estate themselves, it's just going to make your life a lot easier. They're going to be able to speak to you. I guess I get a little long-winded with this stuff, but one last thing too, as far as getting someone that's invests in real estate, a lot of CPAs are super, super risk averse. They do not want to take any risks. If you propose something to them, they're just going to tell you, nope, can't do that because there's no tax law for it. There's no court rulings for it that actually support that situation. It makes me mad because it's like so many CPAs are terrified of the IRS. What they're really terrified about is pulling an audit and then having to deal with their client trying to figure that stuff out. Work with a CPA that aligns with you as far as a business and an investor perspective. If they invest in real estate, if they're a small business owner themselves, they feel comfortable taking risks. They understand the risk and reward situations that come up within a business and within real estate. So uh, corporations do this all the time. If you look at a corporation's balance sheet, there'll be a liability for an uncertain tax position, which means, hey, we took this tax position. There's no rulings on. Hopefully it works. The probability it doesn't work about 50%. So let's just say we'll owe this much in future penalties, fees, and back taxes for taking this position. And that's how you got to kind of think of yourself as an investor and a business owner. Like your CPA just shouldn't be telling you what you can't do. You should be coming to your CPA with different tax saving strategies. They can either agree, disagree, tell you the risk, the reward, as well as they should be bringing strategies to you. Like, hey, I see this little niche here that we could take advantage of and it could save you this much money in taxes. There's no court rulings on a specific situation. The IRS could audit us and say, hey, this is an illegitimate position that you're taking. It's going to cost this much money. Well, your CPA should come to you this year and say, hey, we will save $15,000 in taxes doing this. If they decide this isn't okay, we might owe $25,000 four years from now. But that should be your decision whether you want to take that risk or not. You're going to know what your business is going to look like in the future. Maybe the money right now is more important to you than in the future and vice versa. So that should be your decision as a business owner or investor. It should be your decision of whether you want to go ahead with a strategy or not. And your CPA is just an advisor. These are your numbers that we're working with. And a real life example of that, we have a few members of the show that, that use Cody, but shout out to Andre and Cass, who I'm sure will be uh, listening to this. I just helped them get into another house hack just last week. They use Cody and honestly, they're blown away. I don't know all the specifics of the, the intricacies of their financial life, but I know that they were blown away with the leap in, in deductions they were able to take and the ability to, to plan and go from one house hack last year, 12 months ago to number two this year already well ahead of schedule. It's just a testament to kind of their dedication to planning, Cody helping them and advising them. 
them. And now with them having a baby this month, they're able to kind of supercharge what they thought they were able to do in just 12 months by house hacking, taking advantage of a lot of those strategies. Absolutely. Yeah. For the house hackers, of course, we have strategies and and each one's going to be a little bit different. I would advise everyone listening to this to at the very least, reach out to Cody, talk a little bit about uh, what you have going on in your specific scenario, see how he can help you and whether that's working with him directly or working with somebody in your market, but at least having Cody give you a little bit of an idea what that looks like. But now beyond just the house hacking, so you bought a place like a lot of our listeners did and you move out and you continue to build your real estate portfolio long-term. Talk through some of the strategies just overall that people maybe don't understand or, or don't realize are out there for real estate investors. I guess I'll hit on the one that I'm pretty passionate about right now. I'm actually executing this myself and I've executed this for a couple of clients. There's what's called a bonus depreciation that Trump enacted and it's going to start phasing out here. I think this is the last year you get 100% bonus depreciation that's going to continue to decrease. So one strategy that I'm looking into to kind of increase my bandwidth and start to collect more properties is if I'm not a real estate professional, I can't offset any of my W-2 income or business income, but there's a unique rule for like hotels. Their average stay is under seven days. Is it really fair for them not to be able to take these losses? I mean, they're running a business at the end of the day. This isn't passive rental activity. If you do some good documenting and some good planning, you can go ahead and buy a property and rent it out on VRBO or Airbnb for under seven days on average throughout the year. And if you have enough material participation hours in that activity and you meet the different like stay requirements, there's a long list of things that you need to qualify for. You can do what's called a cost segregation study. And so what this does is engineers go into the home, they break up the house. For the structure of a house, you have to depreciate over uh, 27 and a half years. Well, your carpet doesn't need to be depreciated 27 and a half years. Your appliances don't need to be depreciated 27 and a half years. But when you buy a house, the IRS doesn't expect people to go and portion out every piece of their house to increase those depreciation schedules. So when you break up a house, you have an engineer actually come in and put a price to different components of your home, the windows, the flooring, the cabinetry, whatever it is, you can start to go from depreciating that over 27 and a half to depreciating it over 10, 15, five, seven years. So faster depreciation, but anything under that 15 year depreciation mark, you can actually bonus depreciate. So what I've been seeing is if you actually execute on this strategy and do a cost segregation study and take the bonus depreciation, you can recapture about 30% of the purchase price of the home in that first year. So if you buy a $100,000 house, you cost segregate it, you should get about a twenty dollars to $30,000 deduction on your income. And because you're following this really niche rule of business hotel, if you follow this niche rule, I'm actually able to decrease my active income, my business and my W-2 income with this deduction. So I could buy a $100,000 house and take a $20,000 decrease in my W-2 income. And I mean, obviously that's huge. If you Google search it, there's a lot of information around it. It's extremely powerful and something that I've become pretty passionate about. I'm executing that one myself. So that's one way where you can start to increase these depreciations and get you into houses faster and help you grow your portfolio quicker. What other questions you got? Like you said, like not traditional house hacker. Maybe somebody just beyond house hack. They've done one or they have ambition to do one or two. Like, What can they look forward to? What should they start planning for? They just bought one this last year, but in five, 10 years, they want to grow a portfolio, 10, 20, 50, 100, whatever it is that their ambition is to grow a real estate portfolio. Like, What are some of the things that beyond house hacking that they can take advantage of? What should they prep for? Things of that nature. Yeah. Well, one sick thing that you should be pretty pumped about is you're going to have tax-free income on any of those properties. You should be able to capture all the expenses and just off the depreciation schedules of the house and the condition you bought it in and any renovations and anything you do, you should offset any income coming into those houses. Now, what that takes is a lot of 
the planning. You need to meet with your CPA and your advisor. You need to accurately and diligently portion out your expenses. If you hand an accountant numbers at the end of the year or during tax season, there's nothing that can be done that's over with. If you hand it to them in February, they're just going to do your return. And they're really not providing any value. And not many good CPAs want to just do a tax return. That's not really fun. So you should be meeting with your advisor quarterly. That's the biggest thing is you're going to have tax-free income. As far as you know, I'm trying to think of some of the, the more unique things we do. I mean, another thing too, is like, if like in the future, you know, you're going to have more tax deductible, you're going to more have more expenses that are deductible. So another one, I got Home Depot like 10 minutes away from me. So I keep accurate books and then I apply the mileage rate to going to Home Depot and back. Um, there's just a lot of small deductions that a lot of people miss that you can actually take advantage of as you start to grow your rental portfolio. And then I spoke on bonus depreciation. The thing that stinks with bonus depreciation though, is like I said earlier, if you're not qualifying as a real estate professional or using some more advanced strategies to actually take these losses, I mean, you can supercharge your losses all you want, but you're just going to end up having to suspend them and roll them forward, which can be powerful too. I mean, if you want to sell in the future, you have other passive income coming in, like you can use those passive losses. I just see that a lot of people end up not being able to use them, which kind of stinks. One thing, the two-year rule, like if you live in a property for two years and you sell it later down the road, it's going to reduce your tax bill. My understanding is that's going to be a little bit different if you're house hacking a multi-unit versus house hacking a single family. Can you go into detail of more specifics of exactly how that rule works and then how it's going to be different for the different type of house hacks? Yeah, for sure. So if, if you have a house that you live in for two of the past five years, you can sell it any of that gain, not taxable. Very common. I mean, everyone uses it, obviously. For if you're single, you don't have to pay taxes on 250000 a gain. And then if you're married filing jointly, it's 500000 Thanks for bringing this up because this is a good point and it definitely needs to be considered. My situation, I was buying a single family home, I was again, I knew I had a big equity play. If I was just trying to make money and kind of like get my jump started in real estate, but didn't really know if I wanted to have rentals long term, I probably would have just moved in and did a live and flip because the two year mark's about to hit and I could sell this house, take all the gains out and not pay taxes on it. At the end of the day, that's not my what I want to do. I want to hold properties for the long term. I mean, I have this house at a 3.1% rate. I am not selling this house. I can promise you that, especially when you can borrow against it. I probably would have not rented it out and uh, would have sold it and not pay tax on those gains. But since I am renting it out, it's a three bedroom. So you got to take two thirds of that. If I were to sell, I could not get tax free gains on two thirds of that sale or of that gain. Does that make sense? That goes the same with uh, like a duplex. I mean, if you're renting out one side, living in the other side, you can only take a 50% tax free gain because you rented out the other side. There's a little bit of flexibility with this too. It's two of the last five years. You have to have it as a primary residence. So you could live in it your first year. You're the only person living in it. You're renovating the other unit. You get a girlfriend, you decide to move, you rent out both units for the next three years, and then you move back into it and you kick out the other person, you live in that again for that last year. That's still two of the last five years. You can still take that game because it was your primary residence for two of the last five years. It doesn't have to be consecutive. Yeah. I mean, you could even, if you're in a duplex, you live in one unit, the other unit opens up. And if you're going to be there for four years, hop over to the other unit, live yeah. there for two years, and that's going to hit that mark too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's just always everyone's personal circumstances. You know, what are your goals? What are you trying to do in real estate? That's another thing. I always get eerie about giving any tax advice or tax tips over the internet just because people read a forum or they hear some advice. And yes, I mean, usually it is true. You can do these things, but there are so many rules and things you need to actually qualify for in order to take advantage of those strategies or whatever it is. And that's why it's so important to have somebody like Cody in your corner and to talk through it and to understand what you're doing, the implications of it and the long-term play too. Sometimes it's to take short-term tax gains. Sometimes it's good to delay those gains or whatever long-term. But one thing you spoke to now that's kind of 
probably not talked about enough is really the properties we buy being the true asset. Because like you talked about borrowing against that home, the equity you're doing a HELOC that you take out is not taxed. Correct. And that's always something that Cody and I talk about personally because of the kind of money as a whole we make now. We do a lot of borrowing against properties versus actually taking that gain. And specifically, like we'll go into maybe this next, Cody, because obviously the burst strategy is, is very popular. It's something that I do a lot of now, as Cody knows. Ultimately for us, this particular year, we delayed a lot of flips because we have made so much money this year. And instead, we borrowed 100% upfront to purchase the property and then put a tenant in and borrowed against it right away and never actually took a true gain on the property. Now we're holding it long-term. So kind of talk about that. I feel like in some degrees, it's talked about a lot, but in other sense, it's not. That's like the borrow till you die strategy. A lot of people use it. Basically, so just like my case, because 60% LTV after the renovations, sweet. I'm going to rent it out. I'm going to borrow against that equity to whatever, go get more real estate to build my business. Now you're your own bank. So now I can use those funds to go grow in other areas of my life, pay back the HELOC as needed. And when the HELOC's paid off or whatever, the house is going to continue to appreciate in value. And why sell the house later on in the future? You already depreciated so much of the house. The house has increased so much in equity. You're going to have this huge capital gain. I mean, unless you 1031 it, but you're going to have this huge gain. Pay off that HELOC, let that thing appreciate more, and then go borrow against it again and pay $0 in taxes on it again. Like you can continue to borrow against these assets and not pay any money in taxes on them and continue to grow in other areas of your business. So yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Continuing to borrow and leverage the assets that you have is very important. But yeah, so for a burr, you're 100% financed and you're pulling it out and then you're turning it into a full-term rental. It's an it's extremely powerful strategy. You have an asset, you're going to continue to rent out, you're going to continue the benefits of depreciation. You, my friend, are a real estate professional, so you can decrease your taxes from your brokerage from all of your real estate holdings. If you're going to hold on to them long-term, things just start to compound and yeah, you can continue to leverage these things for the rest of their lives. So it's pretty awesome. I mean, real estate's amazing. So let's go into that because honestly, it's been cool to kind of get to where we kind of are now. And obviously Cody knows the intricacies of that, but I prefer to talk about my origin story because I didn't come from money. Started out just like everyone else who's listening. Drew got to see me specifically in my early days and it wasn't flashy. Drew worked with me right up front. Drew can attest. I mean, I was working legitimate 20 hour days. Drew would show up at 8 a.m. I was working second shift at the time with a W-2 job that really wasn't kind of high paying job. And so I'd get up at eight. I'd work all the way till two or 2.30. I'd go in from my three o'clock to 11 o'clock shift, maybe get to bed at 1 a.m. Drew would be back over the next day at 8 a.m. And I had a beater cobalt, I think still at the time, right? It was rusted out. You mentioned compound and there's a lot of great books about it. What I like to talk about is the power of just getting started, really. I mean, there's always things to worry about. When Cody bought in 2020, we were going through a pandemic. Some people thought with everyone getting laid off, like that was right when Cody was buying, was it when everyone kind of got laid off? So it was like, all right, naturally real estate's going to be affected. Since then, specifically in like Cody's market, there's been a legitimate 45 to 50% increase in, in property values since at least when he initially started looking. You can never predict that. But the power of getting started, despite what's going on outside, if you commit to something specifically like real estate and you're going to do it, most people listening to this are within the age group of probably under 40. If you're going to do this for the next 20 years, the power of getting started is so much more powerful than whether you get a 3.1% interest rate like Cody or a 7% interest rate like my most recent mortgage. In my opinion, it doesn't really matter in the long term because interest rates are always going to flux. Property values are probably always going to flux. But if you get started, you get people like Cody in your corner that can help you and advise you and you're looking five to 10 years rather than five to 10 months or trying to predict what next April interest rates are going to be or, or next April's property values are going to be. Let's kind of talk about it from that perspective. You get 
to see a lot of people, some are real estate, some maybe are not in your world, but like what kind of differences do you see in people that just go ahead and do it regardless of what the exterior pressures are, regardless of what your friend said in 2020 versus those that just get started. And honestly, that's the most important step. I don't come from a lot of money either. I grinded it out. I was driving the beater Scion when I first met you. A lot of those people that were just kind of like, like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Everyone's going out partying, having a good time. They're like, what are you doing? Spending all this time trapped in your room studying? What do you mean you're running numbers? Oh, you're buying a house? Cool. That's easy. Just go buy a house. Like people buy houses all the time. And now those same people are asking you like, oh, now that they see the momentum start to build and you're doing well in business, you're starting to stack up the rental properties. You're starting to start to accumulate a little bit of wealth for yourself. And they're like, oh, wait. And then all of a sudden, like the people close to you, it really shifts for them. They're like, dang, did I really just waste this much time? Like I should have been grinding on this stuff earlier on in my life. So yeah, I mean, getting started is extremely important. Thankfully, I mean, I'm so blessed that I ran into you and your podcast and figured out that you lived down the street from me and we we're a lot more connected because me and you are complete opposites. I mean, you're a big picture thinker. You want to go, go, go. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep. I'm more of, all right, hold back. Like I need to get comfortable with this and make sure that I want to move forward. That's one tip I'd give a lot of people. I'm extremely analytical. And all I would think about is I'm analysis paralysis. I'm not afraid to take action. I just really need to get comfortable with what I'm doing before I take the action. So whatever that is for you, some people don't need to put in a lot of work to go buy a rental. They're like, oh, it meets the 1% rule. I'm buying it. I don't care. I'm going to see what happens. Cool. That's that person. Other people are way more analytical. They really need to break it down and they're going to learn a lot more on that end on actually valuing properties. So everyone's got kind of their own path. I would say just try to find someone that's opposite as you because me being with you really helped me out as far as you just constantly pushing me, being in my corner, like, hey, let's go look at these properties. Like you're not annoying me. There's nothing that frustrates me more than when people are reaching out to their advisor or their real estate agent or something. And it just kind of seems like you're pestering them or asking them too many questions. Because at the end of the day, what does everyone want? They just want the first time home buyer up, easy sale to easily qualify for lending. We're going to get this puppy wrapped up. What does every CPA want? Oh, like you just work this job. You have a primary residence, couple of uh, simple blow line deductions. Let's just crank these out. Like that's just the easy money. So I would say definitely get someone in your corner that you can bounce ideas with and talk with, especially if they've already done it. I mean, you were already well into your real estate career when I met you. So you obviously provided a lot of good insight. The thing is, is just realize the type of person you are. If you're the person that really needs to get comfortable with doing something, then you better be grinding it out all night long, cranking the numbers to get comfortable with what you got to get comfortable with. You can't just kick tires and hope it's just magically going to happen. If you're someone like myself that really needs to understand what you're about to do, then you need to really put the reps in. And I was spending a lot of time valuing real estate and making sure I understand it. Just figure out if this is something you actually want to get into. Do you have the means to do it? Do you have the money to do it? There's a lot of different factors that go into it. So first of all, make sure it's something that you actually want to do. You want a better future you want to go this route to get it because real estate's not the only way to get it. You can go be, I have successful business owners that could care less about buying real estate. And I'm like, dude, you don't know how much you could better your taxes. This is the best investment strategy, most tax effective investment strategy, but they don't care to be landlords. And that's completely fine. Everyone's got their own path. So I guess just find out what your path is and go for it. I took up wholesaling for like six months. Remember that one, Brad? Uh, that didn't work too well. Being analytical, we ran into some issues. We had a sewer line issue. There was definitely a red flag and we had some issues. Okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to finish the basement? Should I really do the upstairs where you're at now? Right. So it wasn't just cut and dry. Like, all right, this is a great deal. It was something to where we were like, listen, long term, it gets you in there. You you can bring your two buddies over. There was some finesse that happened with it too, but it was taking action. I run into a lot of people, which I really appreciate analytical people because they consider things way more than I do. In retrospect, I'm like, man, I should have definitely considered that, you know, but like <laughs> I've always been a shoot, fire, aim uh, individual. It's it, Sometimes it's been a good thing. Sometimes it's been a bad
bad thing. But I've also been able to kind of lend some of that confidence to people such as yourself. And you do the same thing to me, keeping me in check. But because you're never going to find the perfect place or the home run deal. If property values do come down, interest rates going to go way up. So your payments going to be higher. It's going to be you're like right now, right? Like people that six months ago or 12 months ago said, you know, property values are too high. Now they're running into the fact that, yeah, property values might be coming down a touch, but your interest rates doubled. Now your actual numbers, if you're a numbers person, might be a little bit less. So it's never an optimal time. And if property values continue to go down over the next 12 months, it's going to be because interest rates are going to continue to go up, which yeah. they very well might. I guess the point is it's never going to be the right time. Things aren't just all going to align. It's going to be perfect for you. And Cody buying that one deal, I'm sure, was far better for your ability to really see and view real estate in its right light than reading another thousand books. And that's the way it was for me. I read a lot. I listened to a lot of podcasts early on, but having those emotional connections to a deal to relate back to. And a lot of people that have listened to this podcast or listened to my story know that my first deal, I lost everything on. The tenant got murdered. I ended up turning the house back to the land bank. So it wasn't the ideal story, but just having those emotional connections to properties. When I listened to another podcast, like, oh, that makes sense now. Oh, that's how they did that. And that's what it really takes. I mean, I don't know if you drew that well, but I know you pretty well now, Brad. And at the end of the day, I could be analytical. You could be shoot from the hip, but we're the same person. We both wanted more for our futures. It was important to us to make real estate work. You lived in your flip. You slept in sawdust, the little TV on the ground. I slept in a basement for a year. I actually met my girlfriend. Forgot about that. I was driving the 2006 Scion living in a basement. And I mean, a cold basement. I have insulation up in the windows. It is not a finished basement. I lived down there for a year. I mean, I would sleep down there, work at a public accounting firm all day, and then come upstairs and swing a hammer until I get ready for bed, until my, my roommates get too annoyed. And they're like, all right, dude, we're trying to get to bed now. But at the end of the day, we're different, but we're willing to make the same sacrifice. So we're the same from that standpoint. As far as interest rate environment, property values, I mean, I'm analytical, so I like to run the numbers until they make sense. And yeah, I mean, we're always going to be in an ever-changing market. Things are going to continue to fluctuate. There's going to be a perfect way to do things. But right now, I'm trying to execute on a tax strategy. So I'm running numbers on short-term rentals down in Florida. People think they're extremely high right now. A lot of people are saying they could get up into the double digits. You never know what's going to happen. If the numbers make sense, go ahead and buy it. Why wouldn't you? And I'll say this too. This is why I love the long-term strategy. As long as you're holding it long-term, I don't think you're ever going to lose. Look at all the people that were talking about, oh man, like I wish I would have bought back when like rates were higher and values were down. They refinanced it, got into these low rates and then home values went skyrocketing and they sold them all. Well, now we're in a high interest environment where property values are going to come down. You can get into those. Will they come down in the future? Who knows? But at least you have a little bit of leeway and something, you have an asset you can actually do things with and make moves on. If you don't buy anything, you got nothing you can do in the future. We've been shown time and time again that the Fed is going to, at some point in the distant future, bring rates back down when times get tough and they try to stimulate. That's been their go-to move for 25 years now. Rates are what they are at the time. You need to have somebody analytical in your corner that can really understand. But the thing about house hacking is rental rates are so astronomically high right now that getting into a property almost always is going to substantially lower your cost of living. And yeah, at some point in the future, you're going to have the ability to maneuver around that, refinance, whatever that looks like. But house hacking is such a unique strategy within real estate to where the numbers don't have to be perfect. Interest rates don't have to be perfect. You don't have to come up with 20 or 25. A lot of lenders are going up 25% down now, things like that. Things are getting tough. Uh, every day I talk to mortgage brokers and things are changing. I mean, it's been just a brutal 30 days in the mortgage industry. This week's been really challenging too. In that realm, I mean, it's getting tough and the true investor side of things, but house hacking, it's steady. There's so many government loans out there that I don't think we fully appreciate as millennials or even just the younger generations because they've been around or at least been very common for quite some time now. But there's so many options out there for low down payments with rising interest rates. 
space. That means that a lot of times you can start to get more aggressive with sellers, whether that means having them help you with closing costs or, or getting a better price or whatever that looks like. Buying down the rate is super popular right now. Having sellers contribute a portion directly to pouring down your interest rate. I'm not sure if that's talked about a whole lot right now, but just last week, point and a quarter, we had a seller buy all the way down for a buyer. Those type of things, even though interest rates are going up, you have a lot of advantage right now as a buyer. You have a lot of buying power and you have these low down loans that can still make it affordable and you can make the numbers work. You can make those rates go down. So anyways, it goes back to action. So no matter what's going on, there's going to be a strategy that wins. That's the unique thing about real estate. You just have to adapt. And if you zoom out that lens like 30 years, it's going to be a win. And like what you're saying, Brad, in the short term, even if you buy with the rates being higher and you cut out your living expense because you're house hacking, that's a huge win despite the rate. And if you just wait and wait and rates are going to change over time, you're going to have an opportunity to refinance. So if rates go down, you're going to be able to refinance. You're going to be able to get rid of PMI. Your payment's going to go down. That property is cash flowing or cutting your living expense. Who cares what the rate is? I mean, the numbers work out. And then if you hold on to that property, it's going to win. Yeah. I mean, I follow a lot of real estate influencers and they all message the same thing. Like they're always like, listen, if you want to get into real estate and it's possible for you, just house hack. I mean, it's it's a no brainer strategy. You're going to get such good funding. I mean, as long as you're not buying an absolute dud, you should be good to go. What kind of closing thoughts do you have for those of our listeners? Obviously, you know our audience. What kind of messaging would you like to get to them? As far as if like you're thinking about doing a house hack, I know for some people, it's just not possible. Maybe you got a family. You can't just do a single family. Maybe you don't have the means to go buy a multifamily and have your family in one unit. I have clients who have families that made that sacrifice. If you're not willing to, that's fine. It just meant more to them than it does to you. And that's completely fine. There's other ways you can be successful in this world besides real estate. But if you decide that it is something you really want to get into and do, and you do have the means and the ability to house hack, which most people do, it's a no brainer. You're going to do well over the long term. Like Drew said, you're going to end up buying a pretty sweet assets. Really happy. I got my first asset, excited to get into my next one. I mean, when you hear these guys talking about these advanced real estate strategies, they're so seasoned. They're not going to buy these single hits. Like they're only going to get home runs because they have so much activity and things going on. It's not worth their time. You as a, a newer investor or house hacker, you got to put in reps and grind it out and get those first couple going. You probably don't know what you're doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but house hacking is one of those things where it's a pretty safe bet. You're probably going to stumble into a pretty good situation. And just for perspective, pretty much every house I bought, especially my first maybe five or 10 houses I bought, I always thought I was overpaying. And I look back and I look at what I was passing up on in 2016, 2017, 2018 or whatever. And I just kind of chuckle, but there's always that perspective. There's always going to be the friends that Cody had, no matter what's going on in the market that tell you that. I'll never forget. And I haven't told the story in a while, especially on the podcast. So I'll say it really quick, but I'll never forget. Robert Kiyosaki is still somebody I listen to now, but back in like 2014, 2015, when I was really starting to get geared up and all that, I listened to him religiously, like a lot of people do and did. He's got great books and all that. And I'll never forget the 2015 election cycle was really one of those times where he was just talking about, you know, the everything crash and going to implode and all this stuff. And, you know, I know he's still talking about that now. And, and I, I totally understand where he comes from with some of that. But I was in the middle of my first live and flip at that point. And it was during 2015. And we were gearing up for all that. Obviously, it was a tough election cycle. And I was losing sleep. I was staying up at night thinking about some of the things he was talking about, how, you know, anyone that owns real estate is going to be holding the bag and all that kind of stuff. And I don't say this to critique him or anything of that nature, but I look back at that time and in my market, the majority of homes, if they haven't doubled, they might have even two and a half times property value probably that it was back in 2015. It's just something I think about all the time. There's always going to be somebody saying that. At some point, Robert Kiyosaki is going to be right, probably to a degree. But real estate is such a unique asset that no matter what's going on out there, if you hold it long enough, you're going to win. And you just have to hang around people like Cody and, and Drew and, and, and people like that that think long enough and can help advise 
advise you long enough to where you just don't lose. And they're going to be hiccups. I deal with things all the time. Obviously, being a landlord isn't always funnest thing to do. My wife and I, a couple of years ago, maybe even before the pandemic, decided to turn over all our multifamilies to property management because it was, it was just something that we didn't want to the headache of, I suppose, anymore. So there are options for that too, right? If you don't want to really play the landlord role. But owning real estate long-term is something that is such a great wealth strategy. You just have to do it regardless and hang around with people like Cody that'll tell you, listen, let's look 10, 20, 30 years in the future. Let's set your family up rather than worrying about what's happening in the now and you'll win. Yeah. Especially early on. I mean, two funny stories real quick before we finish up. I was working my nine to five in the basement and I hear drip, drip, drip. I'm like, what the heck is that? And I go over and I see it coming through the floorboards. I'm like, okay, it's not even coming from the sidewall. So I go upstairs and I literally have rain coming down my drywall in my living room behind my couch. I'm like, what was I thinking? This is so <laughs> stupid. So whatever, I put some fans on it. Next thing you know, I'm up on the roof repairing shingles and stuff. And then probably like three months later, I hear some more dripping. I'm like, oh God, what now? All of the sewer storm starts coming up through the floor of the basement. My whole life's down there. I'm grabbing two by fours, throwing it under my bed, throwing them under my computers, trying to raise everything up off the floor because my room's filling up with water. Four in the morning, I'm filling up garbage bags of water, dumping it outside. There's going to be things that are going to go wrong, especially early on. But the amount I've learned about plumbing, electric, roofing, if you really want to get into real estate long term, I don't want to be doing those things in the future. But at least I know kind of what the price points are looking at. And I can actually honor what a lot of these guys are doing when they're giving me different proposals and stuff. Like I know the work that goes into it. So buy real estate long term and it's going to be extremely hard to lose. And even if we go through a huge crash and a lot of people go unemployed, there's, I mean, people still need a place to live. A lot of people don't have a place to rent. Like there's so much demand for rentals in my area. Anyways, I don't know about other areas, but I'm going to be still cash flowing. And that's what happened in 2008, 2009, 2010 and beyond was that when people lost their homes, they still need a place to live. So rental demand was as high as ever back then. And even if we see a contraction in rental rates, which I personally sort of think we'll see to some degree at some point, it's not going to be anything substantial. There's going to be a huge demand still for rentals and you might just have to have a higher quality rental, but that demand isn't going to go away when people lose their homes or property values come down. It's probably only going to increase. Cody, how can people get a hold of you, reach out to you? Obviously, uh, you're great in your field. You work directly with me and a lot of other investors. Like I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to touch base with you. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, for sure. So I got a website, knitfinancial.com, K-N-I-T financial.com. I got all my contact info on there, my email, phone number. At the bottom of my webpage, I have a little contact us form. Just fill out your basic information, what exactly you're looking for. And yeah, I mean, I'd love to get on the phone with any of your audience. I started up an Instagram probably like a week or two ago on Instagram, just called Knit Financial. I just posted for the first time yesterday. So, but yeah, I run into a lot of the same stuff with a lot of real estate investors, especially new ones. So I'm going to start floating out just different tax tips, just different tips to keep you organized to help out a lot of my newer clients. I'm going to be advising all of them to follow that. So I'm not beating the same drum and they can kind of get that information in one area that they're going to be on anyway. So, but yeah, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I do a lot of valuations for people too. My undergrad was in finance. So I have a lot of experience in valuing different projects and just kind of cash flow analysis and stuff like that. So if you're getting hung up on running numbers, I'll walk you through it and, and help you out. So whatever I can do, just let me know. Cool, Cody. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah, great rest of your day. You too, man. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Cody.